If you're enjoying the show so far, please consider helping by supporting our show. Although never expected, any support for our show enables us to keep bringing the audiobook club to your ears. Thank you so much for tuning into the show and welcome to Season 2 of the Audiobook Club with John York. The Audiobook Club, partnered with Pro Audio Voices, celebrates audiobooks, the amazing people and teams who make them happen, as well as the various talents behind storytelling. To learn more about Amplify and other opportunities to grow your sales, platform and audience, head over to ProAudioVoices.com and listen out for a short but informational advertisement within this episode. Let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the Audiobook Club. In this week's episode, we're so lucky to be joined by audiobook narrator Rebecca Stern. Rebecca, it's such a joy to have you on the show. How are you today? Doing great. Thank you so much for having me here, John. Oh, thank you for wanting to come on. Now, I am so interested to hear, before we get started uh, chatting about audiobooks, I am so interested to hear about your career and passion as of a violinist. <laughs> um, I know it is a big question to ask right off the bat, but could you could you perhaps give us a rundown, give us a flavour of how you found yourself, you know, in that classical music world and, and what captured you about the violin and, and to pursue music further? <laughs> I was brainwashed. Let's start with that. Um <laughs> Seriously, really? I was brainwashed. I, um, my parents, while my parents are both, well, my father passed away, but um, both my parents were musicians. And while my mother was pregnant, they would put speakers around her and play Brahms chamber music at my growing self to try to, I, I, I like I said, I think I was just brainwashed. And um, there were pictures of me before I could even walk, put in a violin case, you know, take the violin out, stick the baby in. Um, and I started, uh, I mean, they decided for me. So there was nothing in particular that drew me to violin. It was that my parents stuck a little tiny violin in my hands when I was about three years old. And, um, but I was completely uh, my father was also an orchestral conductor, and so from the time that I was a little child, he would take me to rehearsals, and I would sit on the podium with him while he was conducting an orchestra, or they would put me in a playpen at the back of the hall while everybody was rehearsing. So uh, I was in an opera um, on stage, not as a violinist, when I was about two and a half, three years old, something like that. So uh, classical music has just... It's part of my blood. There's <laughs> there's no escaping it. That is amazing. So you've literally never known any different. I mean, that must. How was that for you being brought up around you know so many musicians and having that as a as a part of it? Because that's. I mean, I know a lot of a lot of musicians kind of long to be around other musicians, especially you know if they if they're grown up in a small town or a village or whatever. But for you, was it kind of the opposite? Were you, were you, were you? I'm fed up at talking to musicians by this point. Like, how how did you sort of feel about that? You know, it it was interesting because for the majority of my life, it was literally all I knew. Um, I did, of course, have friends who were non musicians through high school, but then I went to a music school. I was in several orchestras. My entire life and my entire social world was musicians until I was in my mid 
20s, late 20s, something like that, when I started doing other things. Um, so I, I think while, I, you know, I'm now no longer a full-time musician, and while I don't miss the physical strain that playing full-time in an orchestra put on my body, what I do miss is being around so many like-minded people. And that's one of the, the reasons I have loved being part of this narrator community. The online community that we have developed is very similar in feel. Obviously, we have different things that we do with our art, but it's, it's another community like that of like-minded people who are focused on their craft, but also outside of that tend to have similar worldviews. So um, it was very nice to to find that in narration after growing up with that. And I, I did not marry a musician. Um, so it, it was an interesting transition for me when I started doing things that were not violin um, to find other people who talked about different things. And it was very yeah. foreign to me for a long time. But <laughs> I kind of got used to it for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so transitioning into audiobooks then, how did that come about? When were you sort of first introduced, as it were, to, to audiobooks? I will 99% blame COVID. Um, yeah. Going into COVID, uh, my careers, I'm full-time orchestral musician and an oncology massage therapist. COVID comes along and both of those careers go poof, no longer viable. And my husband uh, has a job that has him out of the country for weeks at a time. So I found myself alone in the house in quarantine during COVID with not much to do and on the phone with friends a lot. And I had several friends, including a couple of authors, who during the course of our conversations said, have you ever considered voice work? Well, honestly, no, I had not. But enough people said something and I realized that it was something that I could do from home. All I needed to do was order the equipment, look into training, figure out how to do this and how to do it well. Um, and so I, 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 literally had never thought of it. It had not crossed my mind once. I have listened to audiobooks for as long as I can remember. I have been, I, I'm one of those people who would drive 15 hours across the country to get to a music festival. I'd get to my destination and I was at a point in the audiobook that after that many hours in the car, I would sit there for another two hours waiting <laughs> for something to happen. So I've, I've always been passionate about audiobooks and loved listening to them. And when you find great voices that just captured my soul. So once I was introduced to it, then I was like, oh, well, this is an interesting thought. Yeah. Was it like a light bulb moment so that you've enjoyed this content as a, you know, as a, as a medium? And then when someone suggests, hey, you, you'd be really good at voice work. Did that, was it like kind of a light bulb of, I should do audiobooks? It, it was, I, I would say it was a dim light bulb because I initially didn't first think I wanted to do audiobooks. Um, it, they just sounded long. Yeah. I always <laughs> tend, I, when, when listening, I would always look for the longest book possible. So I would listen to 30, 45-hour 45 long books, series, things like that. I thought, oh, my God, that sounds like I, I don't think I could do that. 
So I started looking at commercial voiceover and while you get paid a lot more, a lot more per finished minute or whatever, it just didn't capture my heart. And when I started doing some poetry, some short stories, some novellas, I was like, oh, there's art here. This is what I want to do because there is really, it, it is, well, it, it's comparable to playing in an orchestra. It's comparable to playing violin. It's honing your craft. It's constantly working on those little details. It's looking at the arcs, the both the short and long term, which I that is a, a big one in my head right now because I, I am very much at the point of learning the craft. Since I don't have an acting background, all of the skills that come with pacing yourself and figuring out how to make that happen in the course of acting is something that's new to me. So, um, but once I realized that I was more drawn to the art, I also, I was not particularly drawn in commercial work. You had to pitch yourself so hard on so many different sites and, you know, the, the voice one, two, three, and all of those things. And I, I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out the system and I enjoyed the system with audiobooks more and also found some phenomenal coaches and some really good structured paths to be on, which with my, uh, shall we say, type A personality, having structure of, okay, you do this, 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 and this, that yeah. worked for me. Yeah. So, like I said, dim light bulb, but the light bulb kept getting brighter. Yeah. I'm really interested to know... Um, the resources that you use right at the start when getting when learning a little bit more about this when going to coaches and things would you mind sharing maybe a, an example of a coach or, or or some resource that you found helpful there were there are a lot that that started out i actually started out of all places there's an online education uh site called udemy which has all sorts of stuff and they have sales so you can get great prices. And that was where I started was with one of the courses on there, you know, how to do voiceover. And I stumbled across actually a very good course. I could not tell you the actual teacher or, or name of the course right now, but it was very straightforward about what you needed equipment wise. And, and that was big because I didn't have anything. Um, and I'm not a technologically, uh, brilliant person. This, this is, this is the hardest part for me. So I started with a lot of that. Um, I found, a so you want to do voiceover or so something like that through edge studios in New York city. And that was where I did my first commercial demo. And I had a wonderful coach, Danielle Quisenberry, um, and then after that was when I started realizing I wanted to do audiobooks. And I don't remember exactly how I found it, but I stumbled across Elise Arsenault's Great Audiobook Adventure. And that immediately captured my attention because it had that structure I was talking about before. She has this whole system worked out. You do this. Here's how you set up your equipment. Here's how you learn to use your voice. Here's how you um, get your website put together. Here's how you narrate an audiobook and how you go through that process. And then you get to the point, it, it just took you through all of the steps that you needed to build your business. 
So that was that was my foundation. Danielle Quisenberry with Edge Studios got me started. And then the great audiobook adventure um, has been what helped me to really build the community and um, learn how to put all of this together. Oh, that is fantastic. We're big fans of Elise Arsenault on this yeah. show. Um, as you should be not, um, been on an episode uh, a few months back um, chatting about the great audiobook adventure. And I haven't done it myself, um, but all I can say is I, after hearing it explained to me and knowing uh, a few people who've done it, it sounds amazing. Well, and she's also one, one of the things that every single time I'm in a webinar or a coaching or whatever with Elise, she's one of those people who has the ability to see through whatever you're saying to the core of the problem. She knows how to ask the right questions. She knows how to get you to challenge yourself and to and and talk you off a ledge when that's needed <laughs> so, and every now and then that comes up of course yeah so yeah she's um the insight that that she has is really mind-blowing to me yeah. so yeah in those um in those first few audiobooks what do you think was the most challenging aspect of of of, of taking on those projects um Primarily, I would say, believing that I could do it. Uh, so my first four books that I did were ACX projects with independent authors before I ever started Audiobook Adventure. Um, and while I was doing it, I really felt like I was winging it. Like I I was, I was just kind of improvising my way through um, once I, I think as with any art form, and this is very much the case with violin, very much the case with narration, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And so I think those first four books, I didn't realize how hard this was. And the more I did it, once I got my first um, my first project with a production company, then starting to realize and listening a lot more more critically to other narrators and hearing what other people did, the the light bulb started to come on, showing me how much I didn't know. <laughs> so I think the first four or five books felt easy, and the the technology was tricky for me. Like, how do I do this punch and roll thing? How do, you know, before I had somebody else doing it, how do I edit um, this to make it sound good? How do I meet the ACX specs? That was the hard part. And then around book five or six, I suddenly started to realize, oh, wait a minute. I don't know nearly as much as I thought I did last week. <laughs> so, and, and um, someone... Along the way, there was, and I, I think it may have been Johnny Heller. I've seen it a number of places, but most recently I saw Johnny Heller talk, and and I don't remember what it's called, but it's it's the the curve of um, of knowledge, and you start here knowing nothing, and you come up and you think you know everything, and then there's this valley of despair when you realize you don't know everything, and you don't know if you're ever going to know any of it. So I have been up here. I 
have been down here and I'm probably just about here on my way back up. <laughs> so I've only done, I've only at this point done, recorded nine books. Um, book number nine uh, has been approved and will be released in mid-September. And uh, I now, it's only been a year since I recorded my most recent samples and I listen to them and go, oh. <laughs> I'm gonna have to redo everything. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, so, yeah. I resonate with that so much. <laughs> I think that's going to be the case for all of us. Hmm. If if you're actually an artist, if you're really listening, if you're paying attention, that never stops. You're always going to listen to what you did last year hmm. and go, "Oh my God, I can't believe I thought that was acceptable." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's it, isn't it? There's that whole saying, and I'm going to sort of paraphrase and stitch it to audiobooks a little bit. Um, but it's like the idea of if you're not embarrassed, say samples, for example, if you're not embarrassed about your samples last year, you're not growing enough. You're not, yeah. you know, um, and I think I think that's just a natural course, um, as you say. Um, now, with your experience and expertise in music, does this help you craft and find the rhythm of a piece of text is like is that an important conclusion for you when when prepping a book to find that beat that rhythm of of language i think so yes um it both helps me but also helps me to realize where my weaknesses are because some of my weaknesses as a narrator at this point parallel the weaknesses that i experienced my entire life as a violinist um i'm an orchestral violinist i sit in an orchestra with a bunch of other people, and somebody else tells us how to play our part. Creativity is not so much a part of that. I did play chamber music. I did do some solo work. That allowed for more creativity, but it was not required for my job. And so the criticism that I would get as a violinist was, you know, I can see that you're doing something musical, but can you do more of it? We can't hear it out here. And I'm getting that same thing in audiobook narration that I uh, I know I know how the phrasing should go. I understand that. I I love doing poetry actually because I can feel that rhythm of of the poem. I like short stories where everything is very compressed. But like I my myself as a violinist, I have trouble at this point getting the feelings and the ideas that I have inside expressed in a way that is clear to the person who is listening. So, yeah, so I'm getting both sides. Yes, it helps to inform my interpretations and the art and the rhythm and the flow of audiobook narration. It also shines a really big spotlight on the things that are still problems as a narrator that were problems as a violinist. You are an incredibly versatile narrator and voice artist. Like, does that help keep things interesting for you? Being able to mix and match genres so frequently, not you know, not sticking to the same shtick. My first three books, one was a book of poetry, and then my first, including that one, the first four were all fiction of some sort or another. Still, my voice tends to lend itself toward a more formal, articulate manner of speaking. So I fall very naturally into nonfiction. And initially, as I started working with producers, I started thinking, maybe I should just specialize in nonfiction, you know, 
my big goal. I am going to someday be the female Sean Pratt, <laughs> um, which I would still be very happy to do. You know, that there are there are far less admirable goals to aim for. Um, but branching out of that, as scary as it is for me without my acting background, it also, I think, is what's going to help keep me really growing as an artist and a narrator, because I need to think about learning dialects, um, effective and sustainable ways of doing male voices. Uh, all of the, there's such a huge breadth of skills required for both fiction and nonfiction. Um, leaving myself open to doing all of those aside from the fact that I just love reading so many different genres. But keeping myself open to doing all of those opens the doors wide to an unending field of skills that I need to work on. I am never, ever, ever going to get bored or feel like I've learned everything else or <laughs> everything that I that I could know. Yeah. That's just not going to happen. Um I love dialects. I love languages. I used to think I was really good at accents. And then I started hearing people who are really good at <laughs> accents and realized, ooh, okay, I have an ear for it. I do have that. But I have a long ways to go to be good at it. But doing fiction, doing things that involve those, inspires me to work on that part. Hmm. So. Yeah, I get that. You mentioned a type A personality, how you like structure and routine. I'd love to know what a typical working day in the life looks like for you. Would you mind taking us taking us by the hand down a typical working day? Ooh, um, well, I can tell you when I have my act together and a solid foundation under me, what my working day looks like. And then what my working day looks like when... Uh, reality sets in and everything falls apart. Um, bear in mind, as an orchestral violinist for 35 years, my structure and schedule was always given to me. I knew exactly what I needed to work on. It was very easy. Being a narrator now is the first time I have had to run my own business, that I have had to create my structure, that I have to figure out how to keep track of my projects. I have to figure out, you know, what post-production people I have paid so that I can send them a tax receipt at the end of the year. All of these things are things I had not had to do until this. And at the age of 50-something or other, learning to have that kind of structure, however type A you are, is very difficult. So when I get my act together, the way my day starts... I get up, I have, I cannot do coffee when I'm narrating. I have to do tea or something like that. Um, have my tea. I'll do a little, maybe go for a walk, do a little bit of yoga. Try to be in the booth by 9.30. Um, and I try to stay with a schedule of doing 25 to 30 minutes recording maybe 45 if things are going really well. And then I need to get out of the booth and stand up and move and do something. Just, you know, if it, just shake it out. Whatever it takes to get my body, get my blood flowing. 
because sitting here in one place for long periods of time is not this is not what humans were meant to do. So, and I do, I, I now have my yoga mat right outside my studio, so I don't have an excuse anymore. I have found that my limit at this point is I can do about three hours in the booth in the course of a day. Um, I know there are people who do a lot more than that, but I I am not there yet. Maybe the time will come. Um, but that three hours may be spread out over the course of five or six hours uh, when you add breaks and lunch and things like that into it. Um, I try to, I have several accountability partners and a wonderful peer group who are fantastic for helping out with, um, with accountability, as they are called. Sunday evenings, I try to sit down and go through what has happened in the previous week, what I could have done better, um, plan out my schedule. When I have multiple projects, which I just now is the first time that I have several books on the horizon. So I, I don't have any deadlines coming up soon, but I have several books that I am needing to work on at various stages. So Sunday night is when I'll sit down and say, okay, I'm going to work on this on this day and this on this day and this on this day. And one of the, the skills that I have learned, um, and this is something from Elise, is limit yourself. Don't say, okay, I'm going to just work on this until it's done. Say, I am going to work on this in 20 to 25 minute segments for two hours or three hours, and then I'm done. And so limiting that block of time has been a, a, a lifesaver for me. Um, it keeps things focused. Otherwise, you can just kind of get scattered. So the reality of what actually happens when I don't have a deadline looming over my head is I get up, I read the New York Times, I pet the cat, I go for a walk. I go out and play in the garden. <laughs> then I go, oh, wait, I need to sit down and I need to narrate some of that book or I need to do a little bit of prep work on that next project. So, um, yeah, uh, structure is a work in progress. Um, I am type A enough that it makes me very uptight to not have structure, but I am not type A enough to always have structure. Okay. That's interesting. Does that, that does make sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. Do you enjoy being in charge of your own schedule? Yes, I do. Um, very much so. It's easier when someone else is in charge of it. Take some of the responsibility off. But I do, when I can get it pulled together, I love having that kind of control. I will freely admit right here, right now, I am a control freak. Ask my <laughs> husband. He will confirm. <laughs> so I, I do love having control over my own schedule. Um, so when I'm able to get it pulled together, it, uh, when I, I am, uh, I will sit down with all of my various lists and things that I should be doing. That process of actually laying everything out and deciding what I'm going to do and having control over that actually feels good to me. I really enjoy that. So, yes. Yeah, me too. I'm with you on that one. Yeah. <laughs> we were first um, introduced to each other at uh, APAC. Um, and yeah. I, I'd love to know, like, how are you 
in those types of events? Like, do you enjoy the hustle and bustle of APAC and, and similar events? Like, how do, you, how do you find yourself feeling in those environments? One of the terminologies that I was not aware of that I learned at the beginning of COVID was introverted extrovert. Uh, it became clear to all of us what category we fell in when quarantine started, of course. The extroverts were losing their minds because they needed to get out and see other people. The introverts thrived. I am probably a classic introverted extrovert. I am capable of being by myself in a small space, probably for weeks on end, and I'm very happy. However, put into a social situation, I can turn into a good butterfly for a little while. So I I do enjoy that for a period of time, and I very much enjoyed APAC. But I think partly because the online community had developed so clearly for the couple of years before APAC that I already felt I knew a lot of these people. So it wasn't like walking into a room of strangers. It, it was, there, there were pillars to the foundation. Then at the end of it, you know, at, at some point the wall comes down. A true extrovert will go on and on and on and on and on. I am, I will do really well. I'll walk up and introduce myself to new people, connect people with each other. I love doing that. And then the door closes and I'm done. <laughs> And that's it. <laughs> and then I just have to leave yeah. or I get, you know, I, I get unpleasant. You don't want to be around me when that happens. So. <laughs> you mentioned, you've mentioned community um, a few times in your answers. And I just wanted to ask, because this is something I feel um, as well. So I wonder, I wondered if you can resonate with this, is that my enjoyment of this job catapulted just just accelerated beyond measure as soon as i started engaging in the community as soon as i started making friends online uh, you know over the social media sites and such everything just seemed to fall into place in terms of enjoyment for me does that ring any bells with you oh loud loud bells i can say without hesitation that without the community without the online connections that we have with the people in this field, I would not still be doing this. I would have given up very early on if I did not have the community to turn to. So it's um, however far away everybody is, they have become phenomenally good friends. And I have so many people who I rely on, who I care deeply about. And we all have those moments that things just aren't going right. We don't think we can do this. We just, you know, we, we can't see the other end of the tunnel. It It's the tunnel just keeps getting longer and longer, like some horror movie. Um, and then you talk to someone, you talk to a few friends and you realize that that's common and that things are okay. Or you get a little, little encouragement, a little boost from somebody. Without the community, I wouldn't be here. No doubt in my mind. That's really interesting. I feel very similar. Um, yeah, I do. I, I, I just think that it's almost that acknowledgement from your fellow humans. I mean, because with it being a job in solitude, um, and especially if you, you know, as, as you say, you're home alone quite a lot of the time, 
and uh, as as am I, and I find it tremendously difficult that setting sometimes. Not all the time. Sometimes I'm I'm more than fine to be in my own space, and anything else is annoying. Um, but you know, this I I I do think that those friendships or just that just that little bit of acknowledgement that you have you can get from your fellow humans, even if it's just a just at a, seeing someone on Twitter and having a little bit of engagement with them, it just yeah. makes things a, that little bit easier. Absolutely. Well, and one of the challenges that um, my husband and I have faced when COVID hit, we were living in uh, the woodlands outside of Houston. We had just moved there a couple of years before, and we really didn't know that many people in the area. So we didn't have a lot of social connections there. And then in the midst of COVID, we moved back here to Boise, Idaho, which is my hometown. However, I hadn't been here for 35 years. So I don't know all that many people aside from my family. So it's not like I had a big social circle to to turn to in any of these places. Um because normally you could go out and like go have coffee with a friend. And now I do go have coffee with a friend, but the friends that I have met are friends that I met here because of audiobook narration. So for instance, uh I <laughs> one of the one of my earliest memories was with Elisa's uh audiobook adventure, being in one of the rooms and um, saying something about Boise, Idaho. And this other person in the room pipes up and says, ah, I'm in Boise, Idaho. And it turned out to be Brian Telestai, who uh, lives a half a mile from me. And so we've become friends and we do get together for coffee every now and then. And so that is my local community. But being able to find those connections it, in places now, during COVID, of course, when we didn't get out at all, in this business where you're sitting in a booth, as lovely as you may make it, you're still by yourself a lot of the time. Um, but then on top of that, to be in a place where you really don't know all that many people, it's it's valuable. And And I know a lot of other people who feel the same way, that this has been an emotional and psychological support system. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When you're not in the booth, I read that you have a great interest in your family history. Uh, and oh, I think yes. this is such a fascinating topic. Is this a more recent interest or were there always, you know, stories being passed down, etc. since you were young? Like, how, when, where did that interest really flourish? Well, it, it um, the answer to that varies depending on the side of the family. My mother's side of the family, my grandmother had done years of research before the internet. I mean, sending letters to people, traveling around the world, going into libraries and churches to collect information. And so we have an extensive family tree on my grandmother's side, going back and connecting to John Adams and Benedict Arnold and uh, came over on the Mayflower. And we've, uh, I think that family tree goes back to somebody who was traveling with William the Conqueror. So it goes back a ways. Uh, so there's that side of the family. And we heard stories all the time because there are diaries and all sorts of things. Compare that to my father's side of the family. My father's parents 
my my grandmother was a Sephardic Jew who had been born in Salonika, Greece, and after a fire in World War I, they had moved to Istanbul, Turkey. My grandfather was in a part of Germany that is now Poland. Um, somehow in the late 1930s, he saw what was happening and knew that being in Breslau, Germany in 1938 was not a good thing. So he and my grandmother, with him claiming Dutch citizenship, that's a whole other story, uh, were able to go to Switzerland and stay in Switzerland for the war. Had he not claimed Dutch citizenship, he would have been repatriated, sent back to Germany, and sent to a concentration camp. So um, so my father was born in Switzerland, and then they came over in the late 1940s to the United States. My father was always a bit jealous of my mother's family tree, because to our knowledge, it was my father, my grandmother, because my father, my grandfather passed away when I was two months old, and my sister and me. And that was all we knew of that side of the family, four of us. So when I started doing some research, about 10 years ago, I started, and I found family all over the place. I found my father's first, second cousin in New York. And they didn't know each other existed, and they got to meet. Um, I found people all over the United States and Europe who are some close, some distantly related to us. I now have a family tree on that side going back to the early 1700s in Western Germany and the Netherlands. And um, it was so meaningful to my father to have that family. And and I have to say, as I was doing that, both my, my personal family history, but also for a while, I uh, did some volunteer work for an organization through uh, Jewish Gen, translating German, old German burial records to digitize them. And the process of finding our family and translating and putting online these names and records, I, every single time I found a new person, I felt like I was rescuing them from obscurity. The, the attempt in World War II was and has been in any number of other cases where genocides happen around the world, the intent is to erase a people from the earth. And everything I do in genealogy with our Jewish side of the family and with Jewish heritage in general feels like I am counteracting that. And that, I haven't had time to do it for a while, but uh, it's so incredibly rewarding to to be able to make those connections. And in a sense, it, it feels like bringing people back to life. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think it's utterly amazing. Um, and I think it's so respectful to, you know, your family's heritage, your family's legend. Um, I think it's so lovely um, that you're doing that. And incredibly interesting as well, just on a just on a purely interest basis. I think it's fascinating. What's the um, where's the best place for people to keep up with you and keep up with what you're doing? Well, my website 
www.verysternword.com. It's a great, it's a great website. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and through that, you can find um, the links to all my social media things, uh, where I do try to stay somewhat active. You know, when things come out or when something's coming up, I'll try to post about it. But that's probably the easiest way to to track me down. Fantastic. Well, I'd love to end the show by simply asking if you have any upcoming projects, projects that you're currently working on that you're excited about that that we can look forward to. I have a couple of things that I'm excited about. Um, first of all, I have connected with a, a few local authors here in Boise, which is so much fun. And there is a, a lovely woman, uh, Lori Buchanan, who is an author she writes a number of different things, but she is in the midst of a series of thriller mysteries set in the Pacific Northwest. And I am going to start narrating those books for her in the near future, which should be very fun. Uh, we're, we're excited about putting together a project that is all Pacific Northwest all the time. You know, both of us, she lives just down the street again and, um, we're perhaps going to be going with uh, Blackstone Audio for distribution, which is also in the Pacific Northwest. So that would be lovely to have that happen. So I'm excited about getting started on that. But for me, the biggest project that I've got coming up, and I, I, I'm i not going to say a, a huge amount about it, except that I can't figure out what the genre is. Um, when people ask what genre it is, my best guess is something kind of historic fiction, mystery comedy. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, my first project for through John Marshall Media for Harper Audio, and that will be getting recorded at the end of August, something like that, end of August, early September. And I have a co-narrator who I'm really excited about. Neil Helligers is narrator and I just have so much respect for him so I'm I'm excited to to get started on that and um, learn all that I can in the process so those are those are the two things coming up oh and then the book that um, just finished recording which releases on September 19th is by it's a another historic fiction um novel and historic fiction has long been my favorite thing to read and so narrating it is a lot of fun by a lovely author Rebecca de Harling it's called the map colorist and it's um set in the 1600s in the Netherlands and it's about a girl who is a map colorist for one of the big map companies in Amsterdam and her dreams of being a cartographer. So I, I adore stories about women breaking the rules and trying to find their way in male-dominated um, careers or societies. So oh, Those sound fantastic. And that just about brings us to a close uh, for this episode of the Audiobook Club. All links to Rebecca's social media and fantastically named website will be linked in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. And of course, another huge, huge thank you to you, Rebecca, for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been so much fun. I'm so grateful for your time. Frustrated by the royalty rates for your audiobook? Annoyed that when the digital distributors say 70% royalties, they actually mean 70% of 50% or 80% of 70%, neither of which is an actual 70%. 
wishing there was a way to cut out the middleman. Yet, you want your audiobook listeners to have a smooth and positive experience, and a direct download sale from your website won't deliver that. We at Pro Audio Voices hear you. Out of our commitment to our author clients, we've created Amplify, a program that provides an actual 65% of the sales price that you set, that gives you access to your customers' names and emails so you can reconnect with them, and keeps you in the driver's seat. Check it out at ProAudioVoices.com. You'll find Amplify in the marketing menu. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Audiobook Club. This episode was sponsored by Pro Audio Voices. If you have a story you want to bring to life, head over to ProAudioVoices.com to get in touch with industry professionals that can take care of every step of production, as well as offer support and guidance with marketing, growing your brand, and boosting your sales. Once again, that's ProAudioVoices.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.